Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Rethinking Gender and Power in Jewish Text with Rabbi Dr. Rachel Sabbath Beit Halafmi. I also want to thank and welcome our co-sponsors for this event at Temple Emmanuel. Rabbi Sabbath serves as the inaugural senior rabbi at Har Sinai Oheb Shalom Congregation in Baltimore, Maryland. In addition to serving as a congregational rabbi, she has also served as assistant professor of Jewish thought and ethics at Hebrew Union College, and for over a decade as vice president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Ordained at HUCJIR, Rabbi Sabbath earned a PhD at the Jewish Theological Seminary. She is the co-author of two books, Striving Toward Virtue, A Contemporary Guide to Jewish Ethical Behavior, and Preparing Your Heart for the High Holidays. She is also at work on a collection of essays on Jewish philosophy, as well as a volume co-edited with Rabbi Professor Rachel Adler on the gender and ethics in Jewish thought. So thank you very much for joining us, and I will pass it over to Rabbi Sabbath. Thank you so much, Alex. What an incredible pleasure to be with all of you today. Um, I wish we were together. Together, we were together in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I'm coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, and I love the fact that we can meet as part of this Beit Midrash. We are incredibly lucky to all be connected to what you've all been able to create there. And I am so lucky to be able to call um, Takal Shmuel my, my friend, um, Shmuley my friend, my teacher uh, and colleague. And he is one of those people that I think we love to say that he um, makes a good mess, right? He causes us all to reach out and to do more good and to be a force for good in the world, uh, even when it's uncomfortable even when it's really hard work and how much I am so grateful and proud to be connected to him and to all of you, especially right now, given what's going on in our country, given what's going on in the world, given what's going on in Israel. Uh, and it's such a source of strength really to be able to count on him and all of you to be able to shine the way forward. Before we begin, I would just wanna say two things. It's a classic rabbinic thing, right? To say, I would like to say two things before I speak. Um, one is that we will say a bracha before we study because we're gonna be studying sacred texts, even if they might be disturbing or challenging. So uh, we will be doing that. But because some of what we're gonna talk about is gonna be disturbing and uh, potentially challenging, uh, I wanna note that, make room for the fact that it may raise things for people uh, say that one of the reasons for picking this topic is because it has really been going on in the this tension around gender in Judaism has been going on since the very beginning uh, in a conflict of narratives of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that we'll get into in a moment. Uh, but really there's a, a struggle going on and thanks to the Me Too movement and thanks to contemporary society and a lot of upstanders and brave people, um, including Shmuley, we are able to speak about these things now. And we're able to gather together and really speak about them directly and see how some of these issues have played themselves out in our texts and throughout our culture. And how do we take responsibility? And how do we also shape a future in which every human being is truly treated in the image of God and a future in which all people can reach their full, full potential. So a, a bracha to begin with, of the prayer for la'asok b'divrei Torah, the blessing for studying sacred texts. And we can say it together, but if you know it, and I'll say it in English as well, baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah, Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of the universe, the one who has given us this Torah, the source of ethics and strength and goodness, and given us the opportunity to study it together. 
And we'll say together, Amen. So this question of gender and power is from the very beginning, an issue in our Judaic culture. And it's also a human narrative. And it's a narrative that really undergirds all of what human culture, at least the Judeo-Christian Western world has been based on. What does it mean to be a human being? What were we meant to do? Who are we meant to be in a decidedly binary understanding of gender, meaning male and female, is how the Torah and most of Jewish tradition until recently approached these issues. So um, I apologize and want to note that we will be speaking about gender in a very binary way. I'd love to do another session about what we're learning about gender from a less binary perspective, uh, at least recently for many of us in another session. But in Genesis, in the two stories we get about what it means to be a human being, first of all, the fact that there are two stories about the creation of men and women is already should tell you two things. One, we or it's possible many things, but of them, two are one, we've clearly had a bad editor, right? You can't tell the opening narrative, right? And the or text, the foundational text about what a human being is and how we were created and then tell it again a totally different way, right? It's like restarting um, the play and forgetting to take out that first introduction or dropping one in in order to change everything. Um, I like to think that maybe the redactors of the Torah were a kind of choose your own adventure, creative mind thinking that it could go this way, it could go that way. Well, so in Genesis one, the story is we're created male and female in the image of God, Zaharu Nikeva bara otam. At the same time, male and female were both created in the image of God and blessed and given the sacred mission of filling the, the earth and being the stewards of the rest of creation. Our stewardship of creation is also a major topic. I'm not sure how, I think that's a whole uh, other set of conversations, but we shared the mission. We had the same job description, all of us at the beginning, the same source of authority and total equality. And then just when you think, okay, let's see what's gonna happen with this male and female human being, we get a totally different narrative. That was Genesis chapter 1, 27, if you want to check it. I'm doing this quickly so that we can jump to the promised Talmudic texts. Then if you just a few verses down the line, you get to chapter 2. It's not just, it's not like this happens in Genesis and this happens in Exodus. It's Genesis chapter 1, male and female created in the image of God. Chapter 2, Adam is created. God breathes a breath of life into him. He hangs out for a long time with animals. And he does not find among the animals a fitting soulmate or an ezer konegdo, a it's usually translated as a as a helpmate to argue about everything with him. That's my translation. But the helpmate is created because Adam was hanging out with the animals. And yes, there is a deep ancient implication that there was bestiality going on. And God saw it. Yes, I did say that word that Adam was not fulfilled, or at least God thought that Adam wasn't fulfilled by his relationships with the animals. And so God decided to be that great anesthesiologist and that great surgeon that puts out the first of those, that puts Adam to sleep, does the surgery, takes out a rib and creates what will ever forever be known as the second sex, right? As Simone de Beauvoir named that famous book, the second sex of woman, male names, woman, and woman has a very, very different role. They're not created at the same time. They're, it's not that they're both created in the image of God. In fact, if anything, it's really clear that women are created in the image of men, right? Adam has God's breath. So Adam might be created in the image of God. One could read that second narrative, but women I know this is sounding really second wave feminism. Don't worry, we're going to catch up to contemporary views of all of this. But Eve clearly is in a different place. And when she seeks to go to university, namely to eat from the tree of knowledge, when she seeks to have an education, 
And she was never told not to eat from that tree. She wants immediately to do what often the female characters do, which is to enable Adam to also taste and go to university and taste that wisdom. And it's only then, and I'm I'm not going to say much about the snake being a phallic symbol and all that stuff and how they're blamed and who is responsible, but that's original sin. Thank God Judaism doesn't focus on original sin. We don't have that concept. Another religion does. We'll come back to all of that in another context, and I'm sure many of you have have studied it and, and taught it yourselves. So when they get expelled from the garden, well, first of all, they realize their nakedness and they realize, recognize apparently their difference, their biological difference, and then they're expelled and they're given um, the consequences for their behavior, their punishment, is very different. They're also really not equal in how the law, right, God's law treats them. So if you think about the you know, justice in our time. Here's the first case of justice, right? Our two, there's only two human beings. Do we treat them the same? They did the same thing, didn't they? They ate from that, we say apple, but it might've been a pomegranate or an etrog or whatever. Anyway, they did the same thing, but they get different punishment. Man's punishment is that he will always need to work um, really by the sweat of his brow in order to be, in order to get food right? It won't just come to him like, uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfectly the good place. And woman, as many of you know, how is she punished? Feel free to to make this more of a conversation. We can also invite anyone who wants to, to put stuff in the chat. What was, what happened to woman? How did she fare in that first justice system? Pain in childbirth. Raise your hand if you know, if you've experienced it personally, if you've or if you've witnessed it, been near it, have heard about it. Yes, pain in childbirth, nothing to sneeze at. And not only that, but two more things. You know, if it were just that, I mean, it's amazing that humanity continued after that, right? It's amazing. But the two things that are going to be relevant here for our Talmudic stories uh, and narratives and what they might teach us for our situation today is she was also right cursed or her punishment or consequences was that she would have desire always only for her husband. So controlled sexual desire and that he would rule over her. And it's hard to say, you know, if you want to, you you all don't know me, but if you wanted to say, oh my God, this is like so first, second wave feminism, like, oh my God, we're talking about how he had control over her. Yeah, that's what the text says. It says yim sholba. And the root of that, mem shin lamed, is the same root for to govern, of government, mem shala. So there's really no way around that word. I'd love to make it nicer but we can't. Let's just be honest. Now, is she created to be his Ezer Kenegdo, his helpmate? Yes. What does that mean? What did that mean then? And how do we understand that? I think that that's a very, very interesting thing to think about, especially today. What's going on today is really this question of how we work together, how we collaborate, how we protect each other, and how we really truly are helpmates to each other right? And to protect all the vulnerable and to be able to protect each other and really be good partners. My husband likes to say, not as their, you know, connectee, you know, opposite me. That's, you know, it's important to be able to argue. Does anybody, you know, argue a different opinion from a significant other ever? That's important because you can, you know, that's part of growth and learning, but he likes to say, as their imadi, right? My, my part, my partner with me, imadi. So let's jump to the two Talmudic texts, which you may or may not have seen. They're, they're uh, not the usual ones. I'm not going to talk about Bruria. I'm actually going to talk about a character um, named Yalta. Uh, and if we get to it, uh, we'll talk about two cases of Yalta, and then we'll talk about, uh, if we have time, another. So 
Yalta was minding her own business. And she is the wife of a very, very famous rabbi. I'm just going to give you the story and then we'll dive into the text. Um, and they are hosting a traveling, a, one, a traveling Jew, Jewish salesman, it seems. And it comes time to conclude the meal. And in, in the Talmud and today in in, uh, in Orthodox, around Orthodox Shabbos, Shabbos tables and, and sometimes around the rest of our tables, um, it was customary to pick up a glass of wine when you say the grace after meals. And we didn't have a whole system yet developed about what, as much about what women can and can't do, right? In the ultra-Orthodox society today, you wouldn't even be necessarily at the same table. You'd be eating at separate tables. Doesn't come from the Torah, doesn't come from Halakha, but that's where it is in some communities. In this case, we're clear that they're eating at the same table. And we're also clear that it wasn't unheard of for a woman to play an equal role at that ritual moment. Okay. So this is in the Talmud. It's probably about fourth or fifth century. It is, you know, we're not, we didn't need to wait to 1972 to have a woman say that women should be ritual experts. She clearly is ritually equally feels, and her husband seems to think that she also should have an equal, literally an equal place at the table. Is that the phrase? I think it's the phrase, right? Like an equal place at the table, an equal seat at the table. So let's see what happens. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. So hang on a second. There we go. So before we get to what happens with the cup of wine, I think we need to look at how does the Talmud in other places, primarily in Masachet Ketubot, which is largely about um, marriage and the Ketubah, obviously, and about some of those relationships. But there's a lot of, we learn about how the rabbis saw women of that period. And this is only just about wine. Uh, and I apologize in advance if this makes you want to go have wine. Uh, but if so, you'll be celebrating this amazing woman, Yalta, um, if it's appropriate for you to do. So, one cup is good and appropriate for a woman. Two, this is a question about should women drink wine at all? This is about drinking wine. One cup is good and appropriate for a woman. Two leads to inappropriate behavior. Three leads the woman to initiate demands for sexual satisfaction. And four leads them to demand sex, even with a mule in the marketplace and no discrimination whatsoever. Not sure if, you know, if the mule is really a mule or not. Um, but it's interesting. They had a really developed sense of women having needing and desiring sexual satisfaction and that being a bad thing um, and them being really, um, you know, slutty about their behavior in public. Okay. Two, if she is used to wine, serve her two cups in her husband's presence. So still under the guidance of her husband and under the, um, you know, don't drink alone. And if she gets out of line, at least he'll be there. If she's not used to wine, then give her one cup in the presence of her husband. If she's not with her husband, she shouldn't be drinking at all. Give her no wine. So I, I, I just, I would love to, um, so we can be more, uh, have more participation and have this be more of a conversation. It would be great to feel free to throw into the chat, you know, what do you think about all of this, right? What do you think um, this says? I'll ask a really clear question. How did the men who wrote this text see women and wine? It's fascinating. There's a whole bunch of texts about women and wine. So there must've been a lot of wine and there must've been these cases where they saw women getting, I don't know, sexual, having desire, getting horny, maybe not behaving in the way that they wanted their wives to behave. Is there any conversation about how much men should drink wine and whether or not women, their wives should control them? No. We only know really about limitations on men drinking wine. We know a couple of things. Um, one is that you can't pray while you're drunk. We get that from actually the story of Hannah. Uh, but we, you know, and we have that wine shouldn't be abused 
And of course, we know much more about that today. But we also have this really famous saying. It's so famous that it appears in like adventures in Shabbat songbooks to this very day. Ein simcha, ele basar v'yayin. Any joyous occasion we know, what are we doing? Holding up a glass and drinking. We're drinking wine in some parts of the Jewish community. You don't even go to Minyan and certainly not on Shabbat without there being some kind of, you know, schnapps or a, or a shot of whiskey or bourbon, depending on where you are, right? We, we're, not, we're not a culture that's like preventing people from drinking alcohol. I mean, if we were doing a similar study in um, Islam, we would find very different texts. But this sounds kind of Puritan, right, in terms of, you know, our American knowledge of it. It's, it's kind of Puritan. And it is fascinating. The third piece here is going to be relevant for one of the texts we're going to look at. When a woman is divorced and she's supposed to be maintained um, by virtue of the ketubah, if there was wine in the household, should she, right? Like there's China. There's, I don't know what there is. There's property, there are books, you know. Should she, um, and she needs food as part of the allowance of being a divorced woman, should she be able to get wine as part of that, right? That's one of the questions we want to look at. So um, here it's clearing, clarifying for us, women are not, are not to receive a wine allowance, from the court, not, not in divorce, and in this case, not after the death of their husbands. When we're trying to support someone, there must have been a question about whether or not, if a woman was used to drinking wine, you know, some of us might regularly drink a glass or two of wine. If the society is supporting me, do I still get that? I might get my cup of coffee, but do I still get wine? And the answer is no. Okay, from the rabbinic viewpoint at this period. So now let's look and see how some of these things are playing themselves out. I'm going to jump to a whoops, I'm going to jump to a different um, screen. Hang on a second to sort of see this more clearly. There we go. Um, we just want to look at this slide. I'm not used to being in this particular program, but just we're going to look at this Talmudic framework. Can everybody see that? Give me a thumbs up if you can see it. Yeah. Okay. So this Talmudic framework, this comes from Masechet Brachot. And it is fascinating because of the story. And this is the story that I mentioned earlier. It's the wandering salesman named Ula. Ula is a wandering merchant and a devotee of the rabbis. He goes back and forth. This is important for cultural transmission. He's one of the rabbis that goes back and forth between Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and Babylonia, the main Jewish diaspora of that time. There were a lot of rabbis that did this. There are rabbis today who do that. And because there was no, you know, Twitter or email or mail, or certainly not phones, the way they learned tradition and what to do and what was happening was because of these merchants. They were spreading Intentionally, they were the source of communication between communities. So he shows up and he visits a very, um, oh, it's right. I should pause here and say that they not only bring halachot, right, of how one should behave, how the folks in Babylon are observing Shabbat or how they're observing a holiday or using a shofar or not using a shofar on Shabbat, those kinds of questions, they would share them. Really important legal discourse. But what I love about this text is that it's really, really clear. Not only did they go back and forth between um, these communities, but they went, they spread rabbinic gossip. That's what the commentators um, tell us. Hopefully that's a little clear. So this guy, Ula, eats bread at Rav Nachman's house. Okay, Rav Nachman is the husband of the main character, female character we're looking at, whose name is Yalta. She's such an amazing character, by the way. There are actually a couple of uh, books just about her. So feel free to investigate uh, if you haven't had a chance to study, uh, study before. So this guy, this wandering salesman, is eating bread, and they're um, ready to say the blessing after the meal, and they conclude it with a cup of blessing, as we said. 
Rav Nachman says, don't you think, sir, that one could send the cup of blessing to Yalta, right? His wife. If he's asking the question, he's honoring the visitor with, you know, holding it. If the host, right, the leader, the owner in that the male, senior male person in that situation is asking the guest to do this, what do we know about the practice? Probably means it was a practice. He's kind of politely suggesting to him, don't you think you could do this? Right? And that's, you know, he's, he's even just asking in a, in a very, he just says to him, we don't have any other complication about it. But Ula declines. Can you imagine? He's a guest in his house. Ula's a guest in Nachman's house. And he says, no, I'm not going to pass the glass to your wife. Because I have this halachic authority, I have this halachic teaching from a more senior um, legal thinker, leader, Rabbi Yochanan, who says the following, the fruit of a woman's belly, her womb, is not blessed, except derivatively from the fruit of the man's belly. Right? So a woman uh, is only what comes from a woman is only blessed by way of a man, meaning that the men's blessing and holding of that glass, right? Also think of womb, right? As something that holds the glass, the cup of wine, it's not a glass, it's probably ceramics, right? The cup of wine is a man holding it is the way that a woman experiences the blessing. Okay, we could spend a lot of time on it. So, and he gives this biblical quote to say, you know, God will love you, bless you, blah, blah, blah. We always have to, if you want to say something authoritatively, then you say that you get it from the Bible. And so he uses a grammatic thing to say that God's blessing the male idea of the male uh, body and not your female body. So I don't need your female body to do this. So I'm not going to pass the cup. Okay, now put in the chat, what are you at this point? Let's say you're Yalta. What are you thinking and feeling? Feel free to put it in the chat. You're Yalta at the table. Your husband says, could you just, could you pass the glass, the cup of blessing of wine to my wife down there, I guess at the other end of the table. And the guest says no, because really, Women are not in need of it. They don't deserve it. They're not worthy of it. And I have a text to prove it. How are you feeling if you're Yalta? Insulted, demeaned. Oh, I like this one. This is going to be so relevant. Dump the wine onto the visiting rabbi. I love that, right? Spill the hot coffee. Too bad it wasn't hot. Spill the hot coffee on whatever. You know, the, um, the person harassing you at work, right? Nine to five. But Anybody seen that movie, Dolly Parton, I believe, right? Nine to five. It's a classic, right? So it's kind of like, but the woman who has no power, whether in the office or at this table, what is she to do? What do any of us do in that situation where our very being is demeaned, where we do not exist, we do not have the same rights, and you watch other people negotiating your essence, your being, your reality, your, your fate. That's what she's experiencing. Okay. But you're going to love, I think what happens next. Um, so, so um, entitled Yalta is incensed. She feels disrespected. Absolutely. Uh, wants to be acknowledged for being a high caste. She's right. She's in this, right, the house of the Reish Galus, right? He's a very significant rabbi. Um, and she wants to lash out at him. How did you know? But it's shocking here because of the time period and because of the situation. So what happens? She hears this conversation over at the other end of the table. She gets up in anger and enters the wine cellar. We know how significant they are because they had a wine cellar. Not only do they have a wine cellar, but gosh, don't you wish you were in their house? They have 400 barrels of wine, at least. She smashes them. 
in anger. She destroys that very thing, that very source of blessing that they're arguing about, that they say she's not deserving or worthy of or doesn't have a seat at the table with wine, you know, in regards to wine at the table. So what does she do? She goes to the cellar and smashes 400 barrels of wine. I mean, seriously, shouldn't she have just sat there and smiled and drank her Diet Coke? Shouldn't she have just sat there? I mean, she's the hostess and, and, you know, they have plenty of wine. She could drink it later, apparently. She has access to it. It's not that she doesn't have access. She has total access to it. She clearly is minimally, deeply, well, she's angry. That's the word we do have here that we know in the telling of it. She's angry and she makes a fuss. This is not just a fuss, though. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever been told to, you know, just be quiet or don't worry about it or don't make such a big deal about it or, right? That's what silenced women for generations, right? We've all been in, probably all seen that or been in that role. Um, if you haven't been in that role, hopefully we now know enough to, if we see a woman or somebody at the table not getting a chance to speak or get the cup of blessing or whatever the case may be, not getting the equal role at the, around the, at the table or the equal resources in society, hopefully we now know that we can be, um, be the upstander. Anyway, what should her husband do? She's like stood up. You can imagine her chair falling over and she goes to the wine cellar. She makes a mess. She's clearly making a scene. She's 400 barrels of wine also is, a mon has a, is monetary damage, right? So if you were the husband, you know, what should you do? I don't know. There are other cases, culturally speaking, where you might see you know, Ula giving Nachman, you know, sorry, Nachman giving Uli, Ula quite the fist and sending him on his way, right? Or at least yelling at him, or at least being an upstander and saying, don't treat my wife like that. He kind of does that. He says, Rav Nachman told Ula, let's send her another cup of blessing. Let's send her a cup. She's like pouting over there in the wine cellar. Let's send her another cup. So she knows, right? that I, the husband, really believe that she should be able to receive that. Ula sends the message, okay, fine, or I'm not sure, this, there's a lot of debate about what he's saying here. He sends her the message, um, all of this wine is blessed wine, right? Does he mean all the 400 barrels of wine? Or you don't need to be near the cup that was blessed, that was held for the blessing, because you can just go over there you can go to the back of the bus, is how some people, some commentators read this. I'm just um, summarizing for the sake of time and summarizing one set of interpretations. Just you can stay there in the wine cellar. Don't worry. It's all good. We're in charge, right? Um, what's great is that now, finally, she's not silent. She's not silenced. She's coming out. There's going to be an article, you know. In our day, this would be an article in the New York Times. You can look up my name and see my own uh, coming forward about these things in the New York Times and elsewhere. She speaks and she says to him, she sends back the following message to this merchant who thinks she's worth nothing. She, the hostess. She says, from wandering beggars who go door to door, words are generated. We know he was a gossip and he's now said way too much. I mean, he should have just shut up, right? Words are generated from rags. Lice are generated. That is probably one of the, I mean, there are a few great Talmudic comebacks and uh, digs. But she basically calls him a rag and his words lice. Anybody feeling good about her now? So that's where the story ends. Um, thoughts, comments, 
feel free to just put in the chat if you want, um, whether or not you've ever been in such a situation. Um, David is rightfully saying at this time, instead of asking, right, he asked Ula to, to uh, pass the wine cup. This time he's saying, he says in the second, right, he says, uh, should pull it up again. What does he say? He says, couldn't, um, instead of asking, he says, right, we could send her the second cup, right? right. Let's send her another cup. Right, exactly. Let's send her. Um, we should send her another one. Okay. Um, so you think that, is he getting to become a better upstander? I don't know. Is that Michael? Who was that? Who was saying that? David, what do you, what do you, um, I'm really curious. What do you mean by that? Well, I meant that he's, that he's, um, he's standing up for her. May, maybe not as forcefully as some of us would have wanted him to, mm -hmm. uh, but he, he still feels a sense of deference to a, guy, a guest, maybe too much, but still feels that sense of deference to a guest, but he's, but he's being more, uh, he's being more proactive in support of his wife this time. Love so, it. Yes. Did he do enough or not? You know, I, we can debate that. No, I, I, I accept what you're saying. He's he's starting to be an upstander, right? I mean, it's his house. This is really a question, right? When you're the one in power. Yeah, it is his house. He, he is the one in power. So he is probably being too deferential. Right. And if you want to, you can, um, the public case that I was involved in, if you um, Googled my name and uh, Michael Steinhardt's name, we it's one of, you know, gazillions of cases of abuse of power. Right. And when the people in power aren't protecting or standing up or being clear about it, then there's no chance. This story, because it essentially ends here, is an incredible story for an ancient text. I mean, my goodness, she is has she is wealthy. She is from uh, she's in a marriage where her husband wants her to be equal at the table or equalish at the table. I mean, that's a, that's huge, as we all know. And she has access to resources. And what does she do with the resources? Meaning the wine. She used them to make a point. She used them to make a point. Is this, um, is this, you know, like a, well, I'll leave it to you to, to sort of make the parallel to modern culture, right? Um, is this, you know, a riot? Is this, you know, is this an ancient one person riot? You know, I'm going to smash the, you know, smash the, uh, the patriarchy, as it were. Is this just anger? How do women handle anger? We tend not to have a window into ancient texts of how women handle pain and anger. Because what are we supposed to do, people, especially Jews in general, but what are we taught to do when you're really angry and upset? What are we supposed to do? And offended. She's deeply offended. I mean, think about the time when you were most offended. What are you supposed to do? Be polite. If you're really upset, you leave the table. If you're really, really upset, you leave your job. And then what? And then what? Nothing right? Or what we have, right, are a human history of it all still, one of my uh, male colleagues likes to say, like, this has been a simmering, like, almost time bomb throughout human history, right? And what we're seeing in America, what we've seen a, a bit of, I'm not even sure what real impact the Me Too movement has had, by the way. Um, how's that for a terrible thing to say, but I think it might be the truth. It's not. It's not. Actually, I've had that discussion with people. Forgive me. I'm please jump in. Just I'm this. This is something that's really important. This topic that's really important. What I thought was interesting also about this is people talking about what her husband did, how her husband behaved. First of all, 
um, some part of me when people were saying her husband should have stood up for her got flashbacks of Will Smith punching Chris Rock at the Academy Awards, which really pissed me off. Okay, first of all. And then second, the other thing that I'm looking at though is that also the way that her husband responded. In his case, though, I know that um, masculinity is often defined by how the women around you behave. So at this point, though, he's actually having his own masculinity challenged by this man who is a guest in his house. Right. You can hear now, the age, right? Yeah. Does he save face? Well, like saving face, what would allow him to save face in that moment? When, so when she goes and smashes the bottles, which is first, like the first thing I thought of is like, that's a lot of money that she just threw down the drain and everything though. But it's also the way that people expect women to respond to things by not actually addressing it ourselves, but going and throwing a fit being all emotional and all this, you know, and right. of course they call you crazy for it and everything though. So in this case, so um, when it comes to Yalta, Yalta did basically the only thing that was available to her at that point though. However, though, it's not without its drawbacks as well. So, so say something about the drawbacks because when you speak out, mm -hmm. anybody else ever has, when you speak out, mm -hmm. Yeah. You pay um, a big price. There are huge consequences. Yes, you will. Um, um, sorry, when Lauren wrote about the segregated bus, that flashback, sorry. But anyway, though, like um, the thing was, though, is that in one particular case that I'm thinking of, I did speak up and everything, and it ended up being a disaster for me. A lot of spilled so, wine. Oh, it actually was even, it went beyond wine. <laughs> it went beyond that, though. But long story short, though. But really, honestly, though, like, um, yeah, the angry, unrestrained woman, but also thinking about the wine, like it's restricting how much women can drink in the case of like, well, they will blame to this day. People blame a woman who was drunk, like in the was a Brock Turner case that they said the girl was drunk, so she shouldn't have been drunk. Oh, yeah. Short skirt, oh, dark alley. Really? Yeah. And he she's passed out drunk and he rapes her and takes pictures of it and posts them on social media. And it's her fault because she shouldn't have been drunk and wearing a short skirt. Now, at the back thousands of years ago, would they have actually taken that as an excuse? Well, if they take it as an excuse today, even after all the awareness, so then they. Yeah. All right. So long story short, though, what Yalta did what was available to her but the drawback was is that it is what people expect women to do and it is also you are supposed to just bottle it up but if you bottle it up well this is the explosion by the way right yeah. this is the explosion and so in my case so like the particular time that i was thinking about though um it involved um let's see not well i it involved a breakup that was pretty got pretty ugly so <laughs> anyway, i'm sorry yeah. No, anyway. no, I, I, if we had more time together and maybe this is, you know, a, a series, I mean, obviously it's a series, but right. How do we each behave, right? Yeah. A society is a system. An office is a system. Our synagogue is a system, right? What roles are we each playing in, the, in those seats around the table? Right. right? Um, and what roles have we played or have our institutions played around the table? Right. I, I am a, a rabbi primarily affiliated with the reform movement. Reform movement over recent years, raise your hand if you have any affiliation or have ever walked in a reform synagogue or camp or, <laughs> hi. Um, but it's true about the conservative movement. I just know more about this. It's true about every movement. It's true about the Catholic church, Lahavdil or not. Um, wow, we are recognizing how much all of these issues have been happening in our camp system, right? Not everywhere all the time, but more than just one or two right, bad apples, right? So we know that when a culture decides, right, as a system, in this case, the, the three, you know, the troika of the reform movement, the, the movement itself, the URJ, this is all public. You can look up the reports if you haven't. I really encourage you to. Um, folks in our synagogue we're talking about uh, and every congregation uh, should be and we're required to have a conversation about an ethics code. Uh, but the three main uh, branches, I like to call it the trinity of the reform movement, but I only mean that in a, the most joking way, the, the 
the Troika, right? The ruling most influential three bodies is the movement itself, which is also the camps and Nifty, the summer camps and Nifty, and all the congregations are part of a movement. There's the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the rabbinic, right? The clergy, this is true of every denomination and every religion, right? In our case, it's the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And of course the seminary, our seminary, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. In recent um, months, in fact, in a recent couple of years, the each of those institutions, um, and I've been part of a, a movement of uh, bringing to bear uh, a certain amount of pressure publicly and privately to have, in in my case, mostly the the College Institute where I was a a senior player around that table. Um, I mean, a senior leader around that table. Uh, really take stock in decades of this stuff and really dozens of Yaltas. I don't know, I see, I see my colleague Rabbi Emily Hyatt here and others, right? I mean, I'm sure, and you all know your own, your own story and you know dozens of stories, right? We don't have our own story. Have we not heard a story of a woman who was in Yalta's position of being publicly humiliated and not given equal access and, uh, and worse, right? We've seen it, all of us, I imagine we've seen it. Um, we've all been bystanders, if not victims, we've all, maybe even many of us, um, many folks here might have even unwittingly been the offending party. It's a really complicated thing. But here we have deep in our ancient texts, um, a pointing to the problem and appointing to the human consequences and the mess. I feel like that, oh, I mean, what a mess 400 barrels of spilled wine made. What a mess. And my question to us for today is, before I get to the question, I'm, I'm anchoring this in our first sacred text, right? Genesis one and two, anchoring it in those texts where we have two very different stories of creation, right? Male and female created in the image of God, right? As opposed to first Adam and then Eve and we're forever the second sex on a good day, right? Why have we maintained those two stories? Why? So interesting. I was actually <laughs> talking about this in a pluralistic context where there was a woman who'd actually grown up in an ultra-Orthodox community and she said, what horror are you talking about? Is that the reform version? <laughs> so first of all, isn't it amazing that we, the Jewish people, still share the same sacred text and we're all wrestling with it in our own, in our own ways and contexts. Anyway, I'm anchoring all of this there because I, I believe that there is a deep, deep ambivalence about gender and power in Judaism from the beginning. From the very beginning, we have preserved that conflicting narrative and all of these narratives and so many more that didn't make it into our canon. And now we're hearing the narratives right of our own time and the stories of how, um, of how anger, what role anger plays, what role people, other people around the table can play. So the question really is, if there's a mess, I mean, I, I hope that many of you might agree with this statement that I'm making that we're, we're in kind of a mess still. We're in a mess. There's a lot of spilled wine. Hopefully you agree with that um, metaphor. There's a lot of spilled wine. Who's cleaning it up? Who do you think cleans it up in the story? Who cleans up the wine? Hey, can I just jump in? I saw all the female servants being the ones to clean up the wine. That's what I saw. It was like her female servants are the ones now having to, yeah. yeah. So For sure. Yeah. If not her herself, you can imagine also her getting thrown in. I see the comments in the hands. I'll come to you in just a second. I, I also have been asking myself that question a lot, right? Who's cleaning up the mess? Is she possibly cleaning up her own mess? What happens afterwards? What's the conversation they have in the bedroom that night? Yalta and Nachman. How's that going for you? You know, you kind of wonder. And I think we've all been in those situations where 
if something is broken open, this is sort of what's happening in the Me Too uh, context, right? A lot of stuff is getting broken open in different institutions, uh, um, you know, in synagogues as well, and in our own families, and in our society, in our highest levels of government, right? Some stuff's getting broken open and we can see it. And now there's a mess. And what happens to the mess? If it gets cleaned up, what does that mean? Who's supposed to clean it up, right? And in one case that I'm very familiar with, the next time Ula shows up, that guy at the table, what do you think happens? What I'm aware of is that sometimes that guy shows up and the exact same thing happens. Okay, in the chat we have, uh, and I'll really also we're I'm watching the clock so that we get a chance for everybody anybody who wants to to respond and share uh, a response either to the question as, of who's cleaning it up and how and are we? Um, wow, a totally secular Joan. Thank you. A totally secular and enjoyable take on pieces of the Yalta story. I suggest reading Lessons in Chemistry. Wow. Okay, everybody should definitely save this. We'll save the chat. Um, Alex, maybe you can help save the chat to share these comments with us because uh, they're just so uh, so delicious. I want to be able to come back to them. Uh, Lauren says, Yalta could have reprimanded Ula and reminded him that he's a guest, definitely. Reprimanded, but it doesn't happen, right? But you're right. Um, Jacqueline says, it's not likely a coincidence that burying Roe versus Wade closely followed Me Too, the Me Too movement. Historically, society does not allow women to be autonomous about behavior, sexual, and reproductive choices. Indeed. So pretty soon we should worry that we're not going to get to drink wine, right? Yeah. May I comment? Please, of course. So um, I have two comments. First of all, um, Rachel Adler has a great analysis of the two different versions of Genesis at the end of the women's commentary on the Torah. Yeah. Perfect. That's good. But um, about Rabbi um, Nachman and Yalta. So um, I really went deep into Yalta. I think if you search it on Safari, there's a lot of stories. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, these two were high status, high rollers in Babel. And um, the interesting thing about this story and later in the Talmud is that you would think that Rab, uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman was um, um, feminist supporting his wife. But later on, when we got to uh, Masaket Megillah in the portion about the women prophets, he is shockingly uh, misogynistic and patronizing and patriarchal when he's talking about Hulda and Devorah. So the ongoing, because I've been doing the DAF, the misogyny and patriarchal bias in the Talmud is shocking to me. And we have to continually call it out and name it and confront it. The same as in Torah, just that. Amen. To everything, everything you said. Um, uh, me too also made some, well, that's all right. Um, I think we need Lauren or somebody to go on mute for a second and we'll come back to you. Uh, Me Too also made some huge blunders, focusing too much on wealthy and beautiful white women was one of the mistakes, agreed. Um, Rabbi Mike Rothbaum says, Nachman fails, says to Ula, let us give her another cup, right? Us, he doesn't take responsibility, I guess, or to let you, he didn't really point the finger enough, perhaps that's what you're saying, Mike. I do give the text credit for giving Yalta the last word, and a, right, and a spicy word at that, she gets to call him, right, a rag that's bringing lice. Pretty good. She has a voice. That is a first step, right? The reckoning. I see all of this as four R's, right? There's the reckoning with what's happening. There is the opportunity for repentance or tshuva. There's the, we're, by the way, we're still in the reckoning phase. I don't, you know, I don't want to be too Pollyannish and say, well, we're now moving through this period of this process and human society. And it, no, we're still in the reckoning. Like let's, we still are reckoning and we're listening and giving voice. So that's step one. Eventually in the R's, Chelsea uh, can say more about another time. We, do we want to get to restorative justice and what would that look like? Uh, 
Mike is clarifying the us should be my partner and me. Oh, he should be saying together with Yalta. That would be truly being the right, the Ezer Konegdo, um, the Ezer Imadi, to stand together. Amen. Um, I see David has a hand. I think, uh, Rabbi, you asked a little bit earlier, why are both of these stories retained or, or something like that? You know? And I think the answer is, or an answer is, so we can continue to talk about them. Because maybe the sages knew that they weren't going to get figured out so fast. I mean, the Talmud is saved with so many unanswered questions. The yes and the no and the maybe, they're all recorded and they don't get tightly wrapped up. And maybe it's it's so that we can continue to talk about it. And when we think about, uh, this just comes to mind, uh, you know, um, race relations in the US and uh, lynchings and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, Back in the 1950s, we we didn't we couldn't talk about it because it was just it was suppressed. Now everybody's walking around with a camera on their phone, right? And we we can we can we can have um, a, these things can be brought out and they can be talked about. And the talking about them, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Uh, and so maybe that's a reason why they're written down because they continue to need to be talked about. I mean, I think you're right um, in many in many ways. Um, if we do, right? Um, the person who said the Roe v. Roe v. Wade, right, has kind of come on the heels of Me Too. It's in fact buried it. A lot of things, co- right? A lot of things can bury it. It's a classic, right? You know, here's this whole messy story. But look over there, right? Let's do. Let's direct all the attention and the energy and the distraction over there and deal with other issues. Um, while these still, let's say, there's all of this is still simmering. Um, and I love what you said about the sunlight, um, but I still feel like there's a lot of yes, and there's still a lot of spilled wine. Um, Lauren, I put it, but I still think it's important. This is a lecture about 40 years ago. I think it was Rabbi Yoshua Leibowitz, but I could be wrong because it's 40 years ago. And the gist of the lecture was that given in Tanakh. The women are so strong and listened to, right? They take a very, very central role that there was a reaction and that the rabbis put women in a lower position, suppressed them because of that, because they feared women. So I think that's something to think about. Indeed, indeed, in terms of the the strength and the the, the, the real deep question here, and this is true in terms of when we think about racism and anti-Semitism too, right? The bigger human question here is otherness, right? How do you deal with that one, that thing that is other and how otherness and things we don't understand or people who function differently and look differently, how scary that is, right? Our own story is, you know, we were fine in Egypt when we just had this really smart Jew, court Jew, Joseph, but once we became numerous, right in the, that's the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus, once we became numerous, it became very, very scary, right? That otherness becomes scary and we don't trust it. And that's core to human uh, society as well. There are so many great uh, um, comments here. I am watching the, the clock, Alex, what do we do now? Yes, unfortunately, I know there's so many uh, great comments and there may have been a couple hands up, but we're out of time for today. Um, so I think we'll, ha- we'll have to sort of take a pause to the rest of the questions. Um, but thank you so much, Rabbi Sabbath. Uh, it was very, it was an honor to learn with you. And thank you to everyone for engaging and participating in today's discussion. Um, one more thank you as well to Temple Emmanuel and Rabbi Hyatt for, uh, for their partnership. And I want to let everyone know about our next program coming up on November 17th at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. Uh, We will be hosting Rabbi Michael Marmer for The Other Oven in the Talmud, How a Halachic Discussion Sparked a Great Soul. So we hope you can join us for that and hope you all have a great uh, rest of your day.
And thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, everyone. You take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.